the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon and greetings. Thanks for coming along for the Tuesday, January 30th already, edition of The Ride Home. Okay, I was doing a little uh, quick calendar. We're 49 days away from the first day of spring. I got. I don't like know a, why the fan is so excited because yeah. that seems like a long time. It's a long time. So look, I would say you know winter came upon us in November. That's being charitable. All of November, all of December. Here we are, at the end of January. We're three months. <laughs> we're three months into this, mm-hmm. and we got a long way to go, don't we? I think we do, John. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that it's not going to be enough to flip a coin. I think um, that Punxsutawney Phil. I think we need his animal presence to give us a little pick-me-up. Yeah. What about, I mean, you seem a little down today. Maybe you could go to Punxsutawney. That might lift your spirits. No. Maybe 30 years ago, it might have been fun to go to Punxsutawney. Not now. Now, don't you think so? It might be just like, it might be like the Super Bowl up there. Could be. You know? The movie but changed you, everything. But you, wouldn't you want to see the guys in the top hats and yeah. Phil doing his thing? No. no I don't, I don't think honest. I would either, no, actually. It's on my bucket list. No, I right? don't think I want to. No. <laughs> so anyway, we got a long ways to go. We sure do. But Lent does start soon, and that's always a good sign, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, Lent's also a... Lent's excellent. <laughs> Lent's excellent. It's the best. Don't you love? It's the Lex, beginning of the. Lexi, his. I. Lo, I mean, don't he you, loves Lent. Don't you? Lo, who doesn't love Lent? I love fish fries, <laughs> so I love Lent. There you go. See, putting a little nice. It's bright. just. I'm not. I'm not saying Lent isn't wonderful and important, but it's sad. I mean, it's not. It's a fasting time. It's not like I know. Woo! But still, <laughs> it's engagement, right? It's it is en- engagement. It's engagement with the walk. Forward to Christ. Yeah, no, it I mean, is. It's a right. really good thing. You're right. It is a really good thing. And if you you know marking in your calendar, it's one step closer to springtime. Okay, and I, Easter Sunday. That, that's all good. That's all. That's Just all saying. good. No, yeah. I like that. I like that. All right, coming up on today's program in the five o'clock other hour. Mm-hmm. How about this story about this plane that's on the tarmac for something like three plus hours mm-hmm. and finally a guy can't take it anymore and he just busts out of the emergency i mean the the plane is sitting four hours four hours sitting on the tarmac finally a guy just blows out the emergency exit and goes and stands on the wing yeah he's like i'm <laughs> they sat there in for with no ventilation and so then of course he was arrested and then the people on the plane signed a petition more than 80 plus people signed a petition in support of the guy. I would have done the same thing. Yeah. Are you kidding me? We're going to sit in a. Yeah. Could be worse. We're going to talk about that in the five o'clock hour. Right. Also, um, losing faith. Non-religious Americans are near 30 percent in a latest survey. That's from today's USA Today. Also in the four o'clock hour, uh, deconstruction and dechurching. 
And what does a radio astronomer have to say or think about it? Our good friend, Dr. Hugh Ross, senior scholar and founder of Reasons to Believe, is going to be with us. Also, would you like your dentist more if you could have a dog on your lap when you were visiting them? (laughs) Much more to come on today's program, John. Very good. That's the sort of like the subtopics. Here's one of the main topics. The Catholics look at the news of the day. Kath, please, without further ado, give us the, uh, the top four at four. For Tuesday, January 20th, nope, 30th, (laughs) 2024, number one. Undercover Israeli agents, some disguised as medical staff, raided a West Bank hospital today and shot dead three Palestinians whom the army alleged were Hamas militants planning a terror attack. The raid was the first such operation in eight years, drew quick condemnation from the Palestinian Authority that that administers the West Bank. Uh, It happened in the northern city of Jenin. Israel Defense Forces said soldiers entered the hospital to target a Hamas terrorist cell that it said was planning to carry out a terror attack in the immediate period. After this all happened, mourners carried two of the men's bodies through the streets of Jenin on stretchers, each with a rifle laid across their chests, both draped in the flag of the Palestinian militant group Islamic Jihad. Mm The Palestinian Health Ministry uh, made sure to stress that health care facilities are granted special protection under international law. And that's CBS. It's so ridiculous that we have to debate what's a medical facility because they're used by people to house ammunition. Whatever. People who are trying to escape. How about Hamas infiltrating the U.N.? Oh, God. Number two. Fueled by defiant donors, Nikki Haley appears to be putting enough in the bank to refinance or finance, depending on how you look at it, her long shot bid to slow Donald Trump from claiming the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. The former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador has seen a burst in online fundraising, more than $4 million since she framed herself as Trump's nemesis after losing to him in last week's New Hampshire primary. Just today, billionaire Ken Griffin said for the first time he has financially backed Haley and thinks that Haley would, quote, run away with the general election. Haley is scheduled today to attend also a New York City fundraiser, which will include Wall Street billionaires Stanley Drunkenmiller, Henry Kravis, Ken Langone and Cliff Asnes. Trump, for his part, is calling for those who contribute to Haley to be, quote, permanently barred from his political movement from today's Wall Street Journal. Number three, France's National Assembly takes up a bill today meant to enshrine a woman's right to an abortion in the French Constitution. It's the first step in a legislative process that also requires a vote in the Senate. This measure has been promised by the president, Emmanuel Macron, following a rollback of abortion rights here in the U.S. So all this is happening in France because of what happened here first. A constitutional amendment must pass both chambers of parliament in France and then be approved either by a referendum or by a three-fifths majority of a joint session of parliament, none of France's major political parties represented there are questioning the right to abortion, and a majority of deputies in the National Assembly are expected to vote in favor. That's from ABC News. And number four, John, even by Alaska standards, and flying in the face of uh, some of your complaints earlier, there's a lot of snow in the winter. How much snow? So much snow has fallen so far, more than eight and a half feet. (laughs) 
that roofs on commercial buildings are collapsing all around Anchorage, and officials are urging residents to break out their shovels to avoid a similar fate at home. Over the weekend, there were 16 more inches of snowfall, pushing Alaska's largest city past the 100-inch mark earlier than at any other time in their history. (laughs) And that's your top four. God bless those people in Alaska. Yeah, they're well on track to break mm-hmm. their all-time record really? of 134 inches. Uh, Tamara Flores, who's an elementary school teacher, she said this, it's miserable. It's a pandemic of snow. Yikes. Well, look, it's rained so much here in the last few weeks. Imagine if that was snow. I know. I mean, holy smokes, We're right? we a lot of snow. Yeah, so, well... You're in Alaska, so <laughs> that's your fault. It's kind of what you're asking for, isn't it? Yeah. We need to take a break, but when we come back, how to disagree and be better for it? Our good friend Michelle Van Loon will be with us next. John and I, maybe, will we disagree? Oh yeah. Okay, terrific. I look forward to it. It's the right home. How are you in conflict? Well, better than I used to be, which might not be saying much, but I am better than I used to be. You know why? Because I just had, I've had to do it. A lot. You've had to do it. You conflict have to do avoidance. It. Yep. Yep. I'm a conflict avoider. Yeah. You know that. I know that. <laughs> but you'd probably be happier if you just <laughs> said it. I, get, I don't know. It just brings up a lot of emotion in me. Yeah. And then you carry it is stuff. Emotional. You carry no, it around and yeah. it, comes, it becomes worse. Yeah, but it doesn't become worse because if you get it out, then it's over. And then you're not carrying it anymore. Well, then you, when you get it out, it becomes like... But then it can, be, but then it can end. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> How do you disagree and be better for it? Michelle Van Loon is back with us. She's the author of six books, including her most recent, Translating Your Past, Finding Meaning in Family Ancestry. Michelle's here to talk to us about disagreeing well. Hey, Michelle. Well, I don't know if I am or not, really. I'm not sure. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Just <laughs> avoid all that. Okay, so what do you think about that? Do you? How do you deal with conflict? I... I come from a long line of very um, conflict, battle-hardened kind of people. Mm. Okay. So I grew up in an environment where there was always a lot of back and forth. Mm. And some of it was just, this this was the way that my family spoke to one another. And part of it was, um, you know... It kind of maybe was rewarded in a way. Um, We didn't have conflict about the deeper things. We we stayed away from those things. But when it came to current events, curfews, what you name it, um, we all kind of expected that there was going to be a clash of the titans, Hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. at any given moment. So I I get that I I'm probably in the minority where conflict feels maybe not like a native tongue but it's certainly something that I'm more comfortable with than I've found most people are but I'm also not good at it. I don't know if I've I, I'm trying to grow and improve partly in light of what the Beatitudes have to tell us, if you if you look at that list in Matthew 5, um, you see, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. And if you take a step back from 
each of those kind of points, there's probably conflict underlying every single one of them. Mm. Not just Mm. the peacemaker one that we often quote when we think about conflict, but um, it, it behooves us if we're trying to figure out how to really love our neighbors well um, and honor the people that God is making us to be and love ourselves well, we are going to have to figure out how to deal with conflict. Um, It's not going away just in case you haven't noticed on the news or (laughs) in your your broadcast booth or in the car. So, Sure. So if, I mean, it's not going away, but John's right. It's very awkward to go into it. It's actually easier, I think, to skirt around it and just kind of ignore it it or, you know, pound it down, you know, kind of just forget about it. But unhealthy. Well, now, John, you say that. Why, Why do you think it's unhealthy or how has it been unhealthy for you? Well, I, I believe that avoiding conflict is unhealthy. I know that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think conflict, of course, we're born into conflict. The world is just yeah. one giant ball of conflict. It's how we navigate conflict or speak the truth and the peace in conflict that is the healthy thing. I think the the unhealthy thing is the avoidance of it, which I think most people would prefer to do, even though we are living in this rancorous time. Yeah, it's it's true. And I think... If you um, kind of try to muzzle conflict, it goes underground, and you're the one that carries all the conflict then. And you might get used to it. You might just be like, well, this is what it means to be a Christian. You know, this is my cross to bear that I just have to kind of be quiet, be stoic, be a doormat, whatever kind of posture you take. And whether we're comfortable or not actually is almost a byproduct. It's not the goal. We tend to make it a goal in conflict rather than in trying to work towards understanding and maybe some form of reconciliation um, or compromise, which is often it, mm-hmm. it could be the everyone's least favorite word Um especially right now in our culture. But um, compromise and and listening and empathy tend to create a way forward in conflict. Not always. You can't control anyone else but yourself. But um, to seek to understand sometimes diffuses conflict more than um, to zip in it. Mm-hmm. So, but that zipping it is, I think it, it's easier because you're simply kicking the can down the road mm-hmm. because it's kind of like uh, energy, like it's going to come out somewhere. Right. right. And it might not be now. It could be 10 years from now or it could be tomorrow. But I I do think it will come out. It, it absolutely will. Um, just a few days ago, I was in a conversation with a friend And she was telling me about an experience she had over Christmas. Families are together at Christmas. All those old patterns are percolating right there under the surface. And um, she and a relative 
had kind of a clash. They were in a parking lot. It's winter. Their voices started raising, and they went back to whatever their childhood, you know, kind of habits were with each other, like we often do when we're with our families. And she, she did, to me, one of the greatest examples of kind of the fruit of the spirit of self-control that I've ever heard in a family conflict. Even though it was cold and icy and getting dark, she said to her relative, I know I'm leaving you here. I'm not going forever. I just need to walk around the block before we continue this conversation. And she left the keys so they could get in the car and kind of warm up while she took a pause and then came back, you know, and kind of de-escalated the conflict. I think doing something like that in a family is hard. It can be hard in a church setting. It can be hard in a workplace for sure, especially if you guys are on the air and have a conflict. Um, you can't, <laughs> you probably can't walk around the block, but um, you guys are good buddies and you've, you've worked your way through, you know, a lot of things. But for those of us that are struggling, even finding a way to pause, to pray, to figure out how to respond rather than just react, because when you're escalating, you're reacting, all of those things are kind of what it looks like to build peacemaker muscles. Um, And you don't get to avoid conflict, um, but you get to grow in it. I certainly have. For me, learning not to to fight back in um, some situations has been harder than engaging in the conflict that I grew up with, kind of. Mm-hmm. working against the grain for me. Um but you're making it work. I, you're you're learning well, and making it, right? I'm learning. I'm I I feel like I'm in school yeah all the time. I think we all are in the church as we are in situations where somebody might not be in in sync with us, even somebody sitting in the pew right next to us trying to figure out how to understand and to ask why and, you know, what led you to that um, conclusion? What what have you been reading and thinking about? What are you afraid of? Being able to go beyond just what's presented um, is the work of a peacemaker. It doesn't come to any of us naturally. Even super chill people that just kind of want to lay on the beach and soak up the sun there's a cloudy day can be a conflict too you know so we're talking to michelle van loon and michelle's been a friend of the program for a long time we've talked about many many things on the show um do you have anything in the works michelle um your latest book was no your latest i was going to say your latest book was becoming sage but that's not it it's the generational trauma book which is your latest no it's See, I have a lot to say, 
and it gets me into trouble, you guys. Um, I am actually working on a book about the last 50 years of the evangelical movement and kind of what we're maybe leaving behind and what of all of our practices and habits and fads and personalities um, are are worth carrying forward, kind of standing on the shoulders of church history and scripture um, okay. to tell the story. So, so and, when, and when do you expect that'll come out, Michelle? Next year. The manuscript is due this summer and it'll be out. I'm I, I believe it's the second quarter of next year. So <laughs> we've got a long ways before before it'll be time to talk more about it. But Terrific. thanks for asking. Sure, absolutely. That's Michelle Van Loon. You can check out some of her work that's already been published. How about that? Um, her works include Translating Your Past, Finding Meaning in Family Ancestry, Genetic Clues, and Generational Trauma. MichelleVanLoon.com. We'll take a quick break and come back. Uh, a trip to the dentist, not everyone's favorite thing to do, but will a canine help ease the anxiety? That's next here on The Ride Home, Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's Word FM. When we were kids, all seven of us kids, uh, we would visit a dentist who, uh, in our in our recollections, when we get together now as adults, we would call this the cut-rate dentist. Now, to my parents' um, credit, <laughs> they did send us to the dentist, but more often than not... It wasn't a good one. It was a horrible dentist, and there was very seldom Novocaine <gasps> that was administered. It was kind of like... It was raw. So any number of us grew up with a great horror, terror of visiting the dentist. I'll find myself now, and, and I love my dentist, fabulous dentist, and my hygienist. I'm getting my teeth cleaned, and I'm clutching on to the armrests. <laughs> right. Do you find yourself? Oh, there? yeah. I have, you get tense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you think, what am I? Just relax. I know. And dentistry has come light right. years And I away. love my dentist as well. Yeah, but there's just something about it. And I would just say, you know, early childhood trauma with that, you know, right. crazy dentist. Right. Anyway, there is a dentist in Minneapolis who instead of, you know, some people like have to be like knocked out, right? Nitrous yeah, oxide. because they're so afraid or My so... sister still to this day will we'll do that. Really? Yeah. Well, this dentist in Minneapolis has Ollie who is a fluffy 80-pound English golden doodle. And Ollie, all 80 pounds of Ollie, gets up in your lap oh my while you go to the dentist, and then you're able to hold on to Ollie. I, I love Ollie already. I mean, Listen, I would eat that up. To have a dog in your yes. lap? Yes. I'm not sure. I might traumatize the dog, <laughs> right? Maybe, but... I might be, like, pulling on yeah, the dog's ears. Yeah, but look at, look at how much Ollie's seen after yeah. all this time. So w this is in uh, today's Washington Post, and one of, the, one of the patients says, quote, while my teeth were being cleaned, I was petting Ollie and rubbing his head and ears. He fell asleep on top of me. <gasps> He's such a good boy. He was really calming. I'm surprised how much he helped me. Oh... I think that's wonderful. Studies have shown that petting dogs can relax people and reduce stress, and also that dogs benefit from the interaction as well. 36% of Americans have dentophobia, a fear mm -hmm. of going to the dentist. I'm surprised it's that low. 12% have an extreme fear, according to the Cleveland Clinic. And so they got this dog a few years back, and when it was a puppy at the height of the pandemic, trained the dog to respond to basic commands. At the time, the dental office was temporarily closed because of COVID. 
But as the mm-hmm. hygienist returned to work, she and her husband and the two teenage daughters came and got their teeth cleaned. He said, my husband's a very anxious patient, uh, anxious patient. And while he was lying in the chair, Ollie jumped on top of him and fell asleep. He wasn't bothered at all by the dental noises. So Ollie helped her husband to fall asleep. And yeah. she thought, I'm going to do this for all my patients. It's a great idea. Now, of course, if you were a patient there, you could say, okay, wait, I just looked at Ollie. Mm-hmm. Super sweet. <gasps> Cute what face. a good boy mm-hmm. he is. With, he has a little bandana yep, on. Little purple bandana. Yeah, because he's special. Yep. Um, not everybody would be forced if you like, if they're not dog fans, it's not like Ollie's going to wander in, right? Yeah. Some people go, I don't want that dog. Don't have that dog. Oh my gosh. Me. My dad did not want any animal anywhere close to him. Really? No, Never. no animals at all. Never. He grew up with like Never. animals. Really. No. Wait, show me that picture again. John, show me another picture from today's Washington Post. And, and there is Ollie actually laying on a patient. <laughs> That's so cute. I just, I can't tell you how, how great. I think that that would be. Oh, I'm wondering if it's like, you know, when you do the bill, is there an Ollie fee? Or does he just work for free because he likes it? Maybe so. Right. I mean, mean, he's like ridiculously cute. It'd be very nice to have the pet, the dog in your office. He's a little big, though. 80 pounds, an 80 pound dog in your lap. Yeah, it would be a, a lot. lot. Yeah, a lot I'd of people couldn't it. sort of do that. Do you know, I sleep every night with a 20 pound cat on me. Really? Oh, every single night. Don't There's, you move around back yes. and forth up and down? He gets very annoyed. Yeah. And he gets off the bed while I, you know, get reestablished on the other side. And then he comes right back up and gets himself curled. He will sleep on my chest. Really? Or on my hip. Or he has to be on me. We have to be somehow very, very close. He'll, <laughs> this is my dog, or my cat, Burton Guster. He will sleep with his paw on my cheek. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so that we can we can be very close. have close contact. It's very right, very. I, I find it very cute. Yeah, I really do. But here's the difference. Let me just say one thing. Cats smell better than dogs. They do. Cats actually smell mm-hmm. very good. Yeah. And so having a cat in your face is no big deal. Sure. If you like cats, well, you would think Ollie would have to be but hygienically some, clean. Some, I mean, dogs are stinky. Yeah, they are. My dog's a little low rider. Yeah. He's very close to the ground. Oh, so he's all he's all. Picking up stuff. He's picking up yeah, everything. God love him, everything. Though. So he does have a certain mm-hmm. ambience about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ambience. All right. After the break, we're going to come back deconstructing. What does it look like? What? And dechurching. What does it look like? And why are we doing it? Dr. Hugh Ross is in the On Deck Circle, senior scholar and founder of Reasons to Believe. So stay close. It's the Tuesday edition of The Ride. Over the pandemic, there was this sort of rise of people deconstructing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would see this among prominent people, right? On Instagram. Yes. I'm deconstructing my faith. Usually right? there's a picture of them out in a field. <laughs> yeah, right. Wandering. Yeah, searching, they're, thinking. They're by a brook mm-hmm. or something. And they're talking about how they used to be a Christian. and But now... Terrible things have happened, and they are now stripping it all away, and they need to rebuild. 
their faith or leave it behind altogether. Deconstructing. Hugh Ross is back with us. He's an astrophysicist, author, senior scholar, and founder of Reasons to Believe. Reasons to Believe is an organization that researches and communicates how discoveries about nature harmonize with the words of the Bible. Hugh, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Hugh, uh, talk about this deconstruction idea. Has this uh, has this been something that people you know have experienced, or have you followed people online as we have? Yeah, I've seen both, and uh, there's two phenomena going on. There's deconstructing, where people are basically either abandoning their Christian faith or altering their Christian faith. And then there's de-churching, where they're not adjusting their faith at all. They're just not participating in church anymore. Uh, but they do engage people that they know uh, about Christian matters. And so two distinct phenomena where I really see it is especially among young men. I mean, my social media audience, what I found interesting, it's predominantly made up of uh, people between 17 and 38 years of age, uh, where the men outnumber the women two to one. And a lot of them are very serious, committed Christians, but they're not involved in church, though they do love to get together with their friends and talk theology. So it tells me that the church is missing something. But then there's another phenomena where people are just saying, hey, I don't believe what I'm being taught in church anymore, and they begin to, quote, deconstruct. And some of that's positive. If they're going to a church that isn't teaching the truth, that could be a positive thing. Or it could be, hey, they're just simply uh, been wounded by the church or wounded by Christians and are giving up on the faith altogether. Right. So this stepping away in a way, I mean, I think a lot of people go through this, whether they call it deconstructing or not, right? You start to question things, you wrestle with your faith. That's, I think that's all very healthy, but deconstructing, uh, deconstructing is sort of like a, a hard sort of like push away, or it's a, a severing between your faith and the church. So with that, Hugh, I mean, can the church address this? Can the church do something differently about this? Yes, and I hear a lot of pastors preaching Hebrews 10.26, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But I think we need to remind those pastors there's a lot of different ways we can assemble together. And I like that scripture passage that says the Lord loves to hear his followers talking to one another about him. And maybe we need to restructure our churches in a way where people have more opportunity to dialogue, debate, ask serious questions. I mean, the Sunday class I run is 30 minutes of teaching, an hour of Q&A and debate. And uh, we get non-Christians coming, and it makes for a very entertaining uh, dialogue. That's fascinating. We were just having a conversation with friends of ours uh, at the church I attend to. Bible, um, Bible Church Sunday School is, is very similar to that. Mm-hmm. And the, the specter of, um, of Christian nationalism and or race has been raised in that. That's not something that's preached from the pulpit. But does that have a place in the church? Well, it has a place if you stick to the moral issues. I think it's important that as uh, Christians uh, we realize, hey, Our kingdom is not of this world, it's of the world to come, and so we need to not get caught up too much in politics. Although I do like to use politics as an argument for God. It doesn't make sense. Politics never has. You get politicians and military leaders making the craziest decisions, which is evidence we do not wrestle just with flesh and blood. 
uh, God created to the species of intelligent life, we humans and angels. And uh, the unrighteous angels are trying to mess us up. So things are weird things are happening in your church or weird things are happening on the political spectrum. Don't be surprised. Uh, there's a battle going on that we can't see. Uh, but we also have the righteous angels assisting us. I'm encouraged that there's two for everyone that's against us. Now, wait, how do you know that? How do you know that there are two for everyone, Hugh? Well, it says a third of the angels joined Satan in oh, rebelling against right. God, which tells you that two-thirds right. did not rebel. I never thought so. about that. Right. Dr. Hugh Ross, um, bringing up all sorts of things that I never thought of, and probably the same for you. Senior scholar and founder of Reasons to Believe, he's got a ton of books, including The Creator and the Cosmos, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. My husband is right in the middle of Navigating Genesis, um, which is another one of Hugh's books. Um, Hugh, when you came to join us in Pittsburgh years ago, uh, one of the things, and we had known you for several years with these on, these on-air conversations, but being with you in person, I realized that you have a special gift in that Q&A uh, environment, in that forum. Uh, and uh, so can you talk about that? I mean, you, you, you listen very uh, clearly and you respond succinctly and Every person who got up to ask you a question um, over that two-day period, and there were many, many, many people, they felt heard um, and responded to. So tell us how your mind works in those instances. Well, my wife says that I speak to get to the Q&A time. That's my favorite <laughs> part. So, um, but I notice that especially young people, they're hungering for engagement and dialogue. I mean, both of my sons who are Christians do not attend church. They love to get together with their friends. And the reason they say they don't attend church, we sing songs we don't like, we hear a sermon we've heard before, and then we leave. It's like, you know, what's the point? Uh, but they love to get together at Starbucks with a bunch of their friends and talk deep theological issues, hmm. which tells me the church is missing something. When you look at the New Testament, you know, Paul would sometimes speak with a crowd that would last hours and hours, and people would be engaging in asking questions. Uh, he would engage the atheists uh, that were there in the temple in Athens. Uh, so, and he was basically taking people with him, uh, getting them involved in ministry. And I like also what it says that we're all to be involved in sharing our faith. When you share your faith, your faith will be challenged, and this is an opportunity to learn. It also says we're to be hospitable, uh, be available to people. You made the comment about how, you know, I try to listen to people's questions, figure what the real question is. Sometimes they ask me a question, but I figure, hey, the real question is this, and I'll go to that instead, being patient. And it tells us we're to be gentle and respectful when people ask us for reasons. So our demeanor is very important. And people say, well, how do you develop that Christian demeanor? Be willing to expose yourself and ask people, hey, I don't think things went as well as I had thought. Can you tell me where it was obnoxious in the way I was talking to you? And I found, especially with non-Christians, they're very eager to tell you uh, where you've been obnoxious. And this helps you improve the next time you have an encounter. Uh, that's how you build Christian character in your life. So we need to be involved. And so often the church, it's uh, kind of like going to the theater. You sit and you're a spectator. Church is not meant to be a spectator experience or to be involved. 
uh, in ministry, in sharing our faith, dialoguing. Uh, one thing I've been sharing with pastors, if you will close your sermon message uh, with an open mic Q&A where the questions are not scripted, you'll see your church growing by adult converts. People will come if they know you're willing to uh, be that transparent. Interesting. So that's that's really interesting, Hugh. So your sons, uh, they're not unique in their perspective. I would say my sons as well are doing similar things here. So people want to go to church to worship in community, right? Worship is certainly key. But sure. you're saying let's worship, but let's also engage during the worship process or after the worship process while worship time is still going on. That puts a whole other wrinkle in, in you know the church experience, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, for example, you could close a sermon message out by saying, we've got lunch in this hall here, and uh, I'll be there, and uh, let's talk about what you heard. Uh, Ask me your questions. Let's debate this issue uh, while we fellowship over lunch. Uh, People will go to that. And, uh, and, you know, I think some of the de-churching is just the fact that that we got technology. I mean, the class that I teach, i got to tell you, there are more people online than there are in person. Hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing, especially since I got four engineers in Germany that participate, and uh, they're all complaining that they were the only German engineer in Germany uh, that's a Christian. I said, well, you guys need to meet one another. And so even though they live in four different cities in Germany, they now have a relationship with one another. That happens because of modern technology. And I've been telling pastors, too, don't just count the people that are in person count the people that are participating online, and then the downloads, if you're recording your message. I mean, what surprised me, I might have 30, 35 people attending in person, maybe another 50 or 60 online, but there are times when there's 50,000 downloads of the recorded message. So in that sense, we're able to fellowship globally, which was not possible uh, even 30 years ago. Today, we can have global fellowship. But there's no way you can replace person-to-person contact. And what I love to do is throw the camera on the treat table and say, hey, uh, all of you participating virtually, there's the treats. So (laughs) hopefully that attracts them to come in person. (laughs) Right. Um, I wish we could talk for longer, but our our time's already up, Hugh. Uh, Can you talk to our listeners about Reasons to Believe, about what it is that you do there and perhaps um, how how they can connect with you? Sure. In fact, I just posted a few weeks ago an article on the de-churching phenomenon. Uh, I put out a blog called Today's New Reason to Believe. They can access that at reasons.org. I've written now 22 books, and they can get free chapters of many of my books at reasons.org slash Ross. Hugh, thank you. Um, we love you, Hugh. I, yeah, we really appreciate you. And, you know, like I said, my husband's been reading one of Hugh's books. It's one of those things we talk about at dinner. You know, he'll mm-hmm. say, this is the, you know, the chapter I'm in. And it's this, deep what, but what accessible. Do you, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I suggest it to any of you out there. Hugh, thanks for your time today. No, you're very welcome. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hugh Ross at reasons.org. We're going to step away for a few minutes. Uh, let's talk about another mystery, maybe not a mystery of faith, but Amelia Earhart. Decades and decades after the fact that she disappeared, people are still interested and hoping to find the lost Amelia Earhart's plane. That's next in the right home.
A South Carolina exploratory team, John, claims it may have found the plane Amelia Earhart was flying when she disappeared. No, wait. You hear this all the time. You do hear this, this all the time. This has been going on Okay, so let, first of all, what year do you think that was? Uh, it was during the Great Depression. Um, 32. 37. Oh. If you would have asked me what year it was... Yeah. I, I would have said maybe 1907. Like, I just, oh, I, no had no, I had no idea. I had no idea. It was 1937. Uh, I'm reading t- from today's Trib. Uh, the article says that robotic company Deep Sea Vision said in a press release that a sonar image it recorded in a swath of the Pacific untouched by known wrecks could finally put to rest one of our most enduring mysteries here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. The ocean floor image from west of the trailblazing aviator's intended landing point reportedly mirrors the unique dual tails and scale of Amelia Earhart's Lockheed 10E Electra aircraft. Mm-hmm. DSV said it came upon the image location based on the 2010 Dateline theory which suggests that Earhart's exhausted navigator forgot to turn his calendar back a day after crossing the international dateline. That could have caused a celestial star navigation miscalculation, landing the plane 60 miles west of its intended destination. And no one had explored that area until now. Interesting. So... uh 1937. That's, mm-hmm. So when you look at like the history of aviation, like, you know, the Wright brothers forward, of course, the Wright brothers and, you know, Charles Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart was a national sensation. Mm-hmm. She was gigantic. She was a superstar. Uh, it was an oddity that she was a woman and her prowess in the skies was to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And, and those two things together with the, the gutsy thing of I'm going to circumvent the globe, me and my navigator together. Yeah. And, and she was almost at her destination. I mean, almost. I mean, that's, you know, she was three quarters of the way yeah. home yeah. when she disappeared. Yeah. And, of course, the mystery endures to this day. Countless searches have undergone to look for Amelia Earhart's plane. All these different theories about, you know, she was, you know, people are conspiracy theories even to this day, right? She made it home, but she wanted to avoid the spotlight. So she just, you know, that whole kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What's happened here? What's the story that you're talking about? I believe, looking at that sonar imagery, it is some sort of... It could be airplane-ish like, right? Right. What what they said is uh, they spent 90 days searching a 5,200 square mile area of the ocean floor using a submersible. The vehicle's side scan sonar is said to have nearly four times the reach of previously used equipment of its kind. The company's keeping the exact coordinates private pending further examination, and they're not responding to any questions. Talk about a needle in a haystack. I know. I mean, the ocean is so vast. Isn't it? Um, I hope they find it. It would solve a mystery. It really would. Dogged a lot I mean, of people. It, what it, happened? it would solve part of the mystery. I don't know if after all this time you'd be able to tell the cause. Yeah. I mean, I, that Dateline theory, I had heard about when that came out. I'd forgotten, though, until I read the article. That's interesting, right? Yeah, sure it is. But, you know, I think about this in the same way that I think about Roberto Clemente. When a plane goes down in the ocean, especially a smaller plane, you would think it would disintegrate. Right. So the yeah. idea that the plane, you know... Could even still have any foundations left. Yeah, being, a, you know, a recognizable pieces. They never found Clemente's plane? No, no. God, they never found anything in the Clemente plane. Just gone forever. So, I like the idea of it. Yeah. It would be very cool to find a fragment of this and go, at least we think part of the mystery has been solved about what happened to me.
Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for coming along. It's the 5 o'clock hour of the Tuesday edition, next to the last day of January, mm-hmm. and it feels like it. Yeah. We haven't talked about football at all. No. So the Super Bowl's been decided, and I'm mm, disappointed about me it. Me too. I was yeah. hoping for the Lions oh to be... Oh, my gosh. What an epic collapse. That... I mean, it makes me a little sick thinking about the second half because yeah. it was just, if I'm not sure, well, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of conversation. Lot. Why did he go for it on I, fourth down the time he's when he aggressive. should have kicked? I know. Right. And he's been aggressive the whole season. Yeah, I so get that. I, but for goodness sake. Yeah. And you feel bad for them. Oh, it was your Lions really fan, awful. Right? And both the teams have the same colors, pretty much. Yeah. Kansas City and San Fran. Mm-hmm. So that annoys me a little bit. But, and who you, who, are you rooting? I, I mean... Kansas Who do you City? think you're going to? I think I will go with Kansas City. Me too, because what, if, the, if San Francisco wins, then do they have more Super Bowls than the Steelers? I think so. so or are that. they tied? Would they be tied with us? I, I think they might have more. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, well, so we you don't want, want that, that to happen. I, I, you know, I told my both of my girls, neither of whom give one hoot about football, Nothing. which is tragic That's to shocking. me. I, try, I don't know how Consider I failed. It. I don't know how I failed, but I said to them, like I said to them about Sidney Crosby and hockey, I said, you have to watch Pat Mahomes play Oh, because he's, I I think he could be the best who ever played that position. Ever. Ever played that position. uh, I can't go there. Yep. I think he'll end up being better than Tom Brady. Interesting. All right. He is so incredible. So beautiful to watch. How did he, he's just amazing. And that's the reason, like, (laughs) you, you wish the Steelers were in it. But then it's kind of like, okay, so we stink and we're not in it. So there's like, it takes away the tension. So you just get to watch the beauty of the game. I enjoy it more. I, in a way, I do. I do. I enjoy yeah, it more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, so Super Bowl party a week from Sunday. Super Bowl party. Yeah. Are you going to have a party? No. I'd just like to be at home. If it was a Saturday. Yeah. Yes. But because it's a Sunday and we have to work the next day. And there's nothing in it. I, I mean, don't want to do that. Right. I'd rather Will just you have your own couch. party? Oh, of course I will. Okay, yeah. okay, me too. Yeah, okay. I'm breaking well, out some wings or something like that, right? Why not? Sure, yeah, yeah. All right, what I'm supposed to be talking about here, John, has nothing to do with football. Okay. So, I'm, so okay. Wait. Here's a segue. Here's right. <laughs> Okay, the segue is um, that American life is different in many ways now than it was, you know, 50 years ago, 75 years ago. Everything changes. But it's also significantly different than it was five or 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, a portion of that was discussed by USA Today. And um, this is an issue we've talked about before, John, on the air many times on this show. But I don't recall USA discussing it. And that is the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. Americans, USA Today writes, are continually identifying as none when it comes to religion, meaning they are atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular, a new study from the Pew Research Center has found. About 28% of U.S. adults are religiously unaffiliated, according to the National Public Opinion Reference Survey conducted annually by Pew. It's the second largest religious group in the survey. So 40% of the people who responded say they're Protestants, 20% say that they're Catholics, and then 28% say that they are nuns. Mm-hmm. N-O-N-E-S. It doesn't bother me. Tell me about it. Well, when you go to church now, like on a Sunday, the people that are there... Want to be there. Exactly. 
They really want to be there. You're waking up early on a Sunday morning to go to church. You're invested somehow. So that makes me feel really good. That's a good point. And those nuns that are out there, okay. I mean, maybe they're going to be gone for good. Maybe they're just on a little bit of a journey. Maybe they'll come back at some point. It's okay. Because I'd rather have, you know, the solid core there than the, you know, the sort of like the lukewarm or the less than who, you know, have to be there because of tradition or family or whatnot, right? There's a little strength there in those in those people that are there I mean, on Sunday. I guess that's a good point. Uh, you know, uh, Jesus says to one of the churches, uh, I'm not, I don't remember which one, at the uh, beginning of Revelation, that I wish you were either hot or cold. Yeah, the people that are there on Sunday, I believe mostly are hot. Yeah, no, right? I think you're, I think you're right about that. Um, but as far as the larger, wider culture, though, I don't think that that portends well. Let me listen to this. Nuns, and this is according to USA Today, nuns are less likely to volunteer. Mm-hmm. They're less likely to vote in elections. Hmm. Really? Now, how about that? So of the U.S. adults surveyed, 17% of religious nuns volunteered in the last year. Okay. And you compare that to if someone is religiously affiliated, almost 30% of people have volunteered in the last year. Interesting. Okay, so... In our last segment, we were talking with uh, our guest, Hugh Ross. Mm -hmm. It was really surprising to hear Hugh say that neither of his sons attend church. Right, right. They're both Christians, but they don't attend church because they're going to sing songs they don't like, hear a message they've already heard before, and that's going to be it. Wasn't that surprising? Yes. So what does that mean? I mean, But not uncommon. No, I guess not. And you don't want to indict the entire church because everyone's experience within the church is unique, right? We show up because this is what... To me, like anything, going to church is like a a muscle. Mm -hmm. The more you do it, the more you get used to it, the more you engage, the more you like it or not. Believe me, and I think everybody's listening, there have been many periods in your life where you, if you're a regular churchgoer, you go... I'm not so into it, but I keep on showing up. And I think that's the key. You keep showing up. Yes. And you show up because of family, because of friends, relationships, your pastor, all those different things. My engagement, what happens to me. It's kind of like this. I think about this. When Before we do the show, like we're in our separate offices, we, we're one way. We come into the studio. We spend two hours we exit differently than the way we came in. Yes, that's true. There's a change. Something happens to us while right. we're in here for these two hours. Right. It's undeniable. And I think that's true what happens when you at church. Something happens to you. You go on a journey, mm-hmm. whether you know with the group or right. internally, spiritually, with your Lord, and you come out differently for the better every Sunday. Yeah. I believe that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that, type of, um, that type of interaction can never be replicated online. Right. I know what you were saying about there are a lot of benefits of being online. People from different countries can connect. People from different cultures can sample different, you know, worship styles. People for, you know, whatever. If you, and I'm specifically talking about church here. I think all that's fine. But nothing, as he also said, is going to replicate what it is to sit next to somebody no. that you don't know or to sit next to somebody you do know. Or somebody you do know you can go. And it gets cringy. How many times do you get <laughs> super cringy at church? Right? Oh, it happens. All that time Are you it happens. Kidding me? You're involved in oh, <laughs> that guy or that I'm doing this mm-hmm. or that. It's just what it is to be alive. It just it's the stew on a Sunday morning. Right. But to have God in the middle of that, to me that's priceless. Mm-hmm. I think it is too. I love it. Yeah. I do love it. Yeah. I'd never I re- I I seriously I wouldn't give it up for anything. No, I believe so too. I love it that much.
Right. We the need nuns, to say, they we, miss the out. The nuns, I, th- I feel like they are missing out. Um, anyway, after the break, mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk about forgiveness. That's another thing that uh, when you bump up against each other in uh, a church setting, you hurt people's feelings, you say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing. Uh, forgiveness is absolutely essential. It's really awkward, um, but it has to happen. So we're going to talk to the Reverend Jay Slocum next and stay close. Tuesday edition, right home. Pastor Jay Slocum is with us here today to talk to us about forgiveness. Reverend Slocum is the rector at St. Thomas Anglican Church in Gibsonia. Jay, welcome back. How are things? John and Kathy, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Boy, I love that song. That's such a powerful song. Um, And uh, I love it because forgiveness is, you can tell that Don Henley's trying to figure out kind of what it is as he's singing about forgiveness. And I feel that a, a lot too. I mean, it's, it's a comp, it's a complex thing. Forgiveness. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah. And you know, um, John and Kathy, one of the most profound experiences of forgiveness for me from a church liturgical standpoint came from listening to you all in the ride home. Tell hmm. us, tell us this. So it might have been a decade ago, you had Frederica Matthews Green on, and she's from the Orthodox tradition, and she shared testimony of something they do in their church, where once a year during the Lenten season, do you remember? Yep, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Folks face each other, and they say, essentially, in an exchange, if I've sinned against you in any way this year, please forgive me. And the person responds, I forgive you. Mm. And then then everybody moves, and then you say it to the next person. You say to, until the whole church has said to everyone there, uh, it's sort of saying we have a tradition where we say the peace every week, and it's a notion of making sure we're reconciled. But it's it's sort of that, you know, turbocharged. And uh, so I thought, wow, well, why don't we do that? And so uh, the church I was pastoring, Jonas Call Anglican Church, a decade ago, uh, we would meet in the cemetery in a mausoleum. And we all lined up before we got ashes put on our head. And everybody went down the aisle, and boy, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. And, you know, you don't you don't expect it because you think, oh, I love my people, everybody, you know. But as you're going down this thing, you, the littlest slight or maybe I said something or that person didn't understand me or they didn't show up to volunteer or, you know, all that stuff sort of comes up. And, boy, was it powerful. And so uh, – after that, I didn't know whether it would work or not. But folks just, they insisted on, we got to do this every year. Yeah. And uh, it really was, it was palpable. But most of the time, um, Kathy, I think you're, we're in the Don Henley position of being like, well, what is this? You know, it didn't, I, I know I'm supposed to forgive. Jesus says, I have to forgive or I won't be forgiven. That's kind of scary. Uh, it's our practice to offer forgiveness. We seek forgiveness from God. We also know that 
when we start forgiving, it never feels like we've forgiven someone. Most of the time, we're still angry when when someone hurts us and we forgive them. Yeah. You know, so what's all this about? But there's something to be said, Jay, about standing in front of someone, looking them in the eye, and to say that, if I have sinned, or because I have sinned against you, I'm asking you for your forgiveness, right? I mean, eye contact is crucial. Yeah, and you know, John and Kathy, I think at different times in human history, uh, that opportunity could be more pressing or more powerful than other times in human history. How so? Well, I, I, so I recently read Tim Keller's final book, Forgive. Mm-hmm. And I was in the midst of watching a series with my wife called Dark. It's a BBC series. Mm-hmm. And it's about minors in England. And it's part, the whole part of that was honor culture. You know, they would, if somebody disrespected you, you could call them out and then you would have a duel and you would line up and you'd shoot each other. <laughs> Which and, sounds so dumb, right? To us, know, like, what? Go see, go see Hamilton, right? right? And you watch. That seems so dumb. But it's not dumb because most of the drive-by shootings and the massacres at schools mm-hmm. are part of an, what, what Keller calls and introduced me to was, he calls it honor culture. And it's the notion that I have to keep my honor and if you disrespect me, I have to exact vengeance on you to regain my honor. Hmm. And how much of our society, cancel culture, political, you know, feuds, uh, drive-by shootings, mass murders, what's going on in, in all over the world with, with civil war, is part of that culture, what Keller, Tim Keller would call honor culture, where... And the thing that was striking about that when I read it and I was watching this series was Keller points out that honor culture is all about me. Very selfish. But the biblical model is Jesus on a cross saying something really revolutionary. Forgive them for they do not know what they do. It's it's actually a very other-centered to be a person who forgives in the Christian tradition, because what we're concerned about, of course, we're concerned about not feeling that bitterness or guile when someone harms us. We want to be free of that. But we also want to pursue the other person's opportunity to get free of what they did and to come clean. Mm. And we also want to honor God because he is the one who first forgave us. So we too have to grant forgiveness to others. So the model, of course, is is there before us and, and changed the universe so beautifully done. But still, Jay, it's incredibly difficult to do. We drag our feet through this. Oh, yeah. You know, I think it's probably, um, you know, uh, Calvin said, all of life is repentance. You know, I pro- if he had got to say all of life is repentance and then he had to say another thing, he might say it's all all of life is repentance and then forgiveness. You know? <laughs> so much of the, the Christian year in the Christian life is about, um, you know, how do I, how do I get clean of these feelings? Because we live in a broken world and people wrong us. Right. You know, the the model that seems popular today is what 
we call the therapeutic model, and it's the idea that forgiveness is all about you making sure you don't feel bad anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember the the there was a film uh, Diary of a Mad Black Woman. I don't know if you remember that film. No. Um, Tyler Perry is a, a black director, and, and the storyline is that a woman. Her husband cheats on her and kicks her out of the house, and she's just bitter. And her mother says, you're still angry, aren't you? And she said, how do you know? And she said, uh, she says, uh, then her aunt says, well, you know you're angry with someone if if you still want to beat the heck out of them, you know. And she says, yeah, I'm angry. I do want to beat the heck out of them. Mm-hmm. And her mother says, baby, you got to forgive. Do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. If you forgive... The reason why we should forgive is because we don't want to feel bad. We gotta, we, we don't want those chains around our ankles, you know. Yeah. And that is true. I don't, I don't want to feel bitterness or, or resentment. But the, the true beautiful thing first, from the biblical perspective, is, uh, and this is what changes the world, is that the root of all this is a vertical relationship first. You know, I have wronged God in so many ways, and until I get that worked out with Him. The vertical, uh, I'm really not going to be able to truly walk into the horizontal forgiveness with any power. Mm-hmm. It's it's real. The power in it is he forgave me, therefore I can forgive you. It doesn't mean what the person did isn't wrong. It doesn't mean you don't seek justice. You do seek justice for their sake, you know, so you pursue the person. It's not a whatever um, it's a real powerful thing. And John and Kathy, like you said, it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard, but you know, there are a lot of good things in life that are hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jay Slocum is with us. Jay's the rector at St. Thomas Anglican church in Gibsonia. Um, before you leave us, Jay, I want to ask you about, um, how the church practices confession. John and I have talked many times over the years about this subject because he's from a Catholic perspective um, growing up in that way, um, though now he's Protestant. And I feel like I grew up with a little bit of a poverty of understanding the importance of confession. It wasn't anything we ever did in the worship service when I was growing up. Um, it wasn't anything that I was really taught. Meanwhile, it was like a foundation of of John's life as a child. Um, so can, can you yeah. talk about that? Well, you know, I'm from the Anglican tradition, which doesn't throw out everything from the Catholic tradition, but upholds as much as it can from the Protestant tradition. And, you know, I grew up that way, too. My, you know, I grew up in the evangelical tradition, a tradition where, you know, I the definition of an evangelical is to have a relationship with God and nobody else. You know, to make fun <laughs> of us. Um, so, you know, you only confess to Jesus because we don't want to be like those Catholics who have to have a mediator, the priest, Jesus, our mediator. Right. So right, that's a right. theological argument. Yeah. But in the Anglican tradition, we say confession is sometimes needed because you feel lonely or you feel lost or you need to stand in front of somebody. And so the priest isn't forgiving you. Jesus is. But he's a friend to you who, who you can confide in. And the pastor, uh, in the, our tradition, we say confession is the office of confession, of going in to confess. is something that um, none must do, um, uh, uh, all can do. And some should do. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you have a, bu- a buddy or a, a spouse or a trusted friend who you can confide in and confess to, and they're, they're your confidant, and you can get cleansed from that. But, uh, you know, the church has for centuries been a, a, a location where you can extract 
your sin out of your life and ask for forgiveness in a safe, uh, sterile, medical-ish environment. I mean, the church is a hospital in that sense of bringing confession. You know, we don't you don't don't confess on Facebook to a thousand people on a message group. That's right. disaster. Uh, go into a place that's safe and and hidden and secure, and the church is supposed to be that place. And I think it's a travesty. Maybe it's too strong to word say travesty, but I think it's a hardship that we've kind of ditched the office of confession. Yeah. Uh, because you know I have confessed uh, in my own life, even though I'm a pastor, I've gone to confession, and and it's a powerful thing. It it it, it means something. I think about this often, Jay, because I I often say to God, forgive me, God. I mean, I do this. I probably do this every day. And of course, because every day I'm a sinner. And then I think, well, God's already forgiven you, but that doesn't give you free license to go out and continue to sin. So it is important to recognize our sinfulness and to ask for forgiveness, whether it's daily or weekly. I think we need to be there and then to accept the assurance of pardon that God has died for our sins. But we need to recognize that and to work through that process. Oh, yeah. We're not disembodied heads. We're real living creatures who, uh, you know, I don't tell my wife once in my life I love her. I tell her as often as I can because she needs that reassurance. And I know legally I'm justified. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father advocating for me, as First John says. But emotionally and relationally, I need to keep my relationship with God alive and robust. And sometimes me in the middle of the night saying, God, I'm so sorry for this this repetitive yes. failure in my life. Right. Uh, having somebody else there who you can confide in, boy, it's just a, it can be a powerful thing. Yeah. It is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So let's, let's just end here where we started. So Frederica, you know, in her congregation, if I have sinned against you and, and Jonah's call. So not to put you on the spot, but there you are in a new church. I mean, the, the idea of raising that again to do that. I mean, I would love to do that. I mean, wh- I would yeah, hate to do you that. You would hate to do that. Are you kidding me? I would do imagine, it. You know, I think it'd be really it, it, good. I think I, I think I would benefit from it. I think it would be the right thing to do. But I'm not. I, but I would really hate it. Jay. Yeah, you'd hate it until you did it, and right. then you'd love it. Yeah. And we're we're doing it this year at St. Thomas. And if you want to come on Ash Wednesday, you can. But the dilemma will be. You don't know any of these people, no. so it'll right. be easy for you. Do it at your church. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it at your church. Right, when, right? It'll, when it gets really dicey, right? Oh, my gosh, yeah. Oh, good. So you're going to do it again, Jay, because you, you experience yeah, yeah. the power of that. We are. We are. And I think you know our people are, are beautiful, tender people who love each other and have long relationships with one another. And, and I think um, they're going to benefit greatly from doing something that is uh, safe and orderly and uh, has a big impact. Mm-hmm. The church can offer that. That's good. Safe and orderly are key words there, Jay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is. Yeah, yeah. Because how that. many times have you seen somebody come out and, and, <laughs> and say something in the wrong way and it just spreads like a virus? Yeah, it explodes. Know? Right, right. Hey, uh, talk yeah. to us, uh, Jay, about uh, about where you are at St. Thomas and uh, when you meet and, and all that, okay? Uh, having a great time growing church out in uh, the north on off Route 8 in Gibsonia, heading towards Butler. Uh, we have an 8 o'clock service, adult ed at 9, a 10-15 service. Uh, we're going to be having a Shrove Tuesday, the day before Ash Wednesday. Pancake supper, come out and get free pancakes, nice. sausage and bacon and, and spicy uh, applesauce. And uh, we're having an Ash Wednesday service. And 
stuff all the way through Lent. You can find us online at St. Thomas. Uh, uh, just look up St. Thomas Anglican Church. Excellent. Jay, always a pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much. Hey, great being with you. You as Thanks. well. Reverend Jay Slocum, he is the rector of the aforementioned St. Thomas Anglican Church in Gibsonia. If I have sinned against you, yeah, this is a, we all need to hear this. We all need to do this. We'll be right back. sense. Does what make sense? Pickled vegetables. Now I know we're used to the pickled cucumber, but lately, you know, it's all the rage. You can go into restaurants uh, around the area and you've got your pickled asparagus, you've got your pickled green beans, you've got your pickled cauliflower, um, and that's just kind of the start down the path. There are a lot of a lot of pickled onions. Mm-hmm. A lot around here and I'm wondering have we gone too far? Does this make sense? It makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I mean if you've never had pickled spicy hot cauliflower, man that's so good. So good. Green beans that are pickled? Yeah. How about little pearl onions that are pickled? I'm so. Do you think people would think that doesn't make sense? I think there are a lot of people what? who think really? that doesn't make sense. Yeah, for really? sure, for sure. And I'm here to support your perspective on this, John, as I am with everything. <laughs> no, not everything. <laughs> not everything. But you are absolutely correct sh- because a pickled vegetable mm. is amazing. Yeah. Pickled asparagus? I'd mm, never had it mm. until recently. I'm crazy about it. Yeah. I feel like I want to do it. I nice. love. I all of them. I got this brand of pickled onion, yeah. Vidalia onion. Very good. I can I love peas. Pickled peas. Yes. Oh, that's very nice. All right. Then pickled vegetables. I think both of us agree. I agree, yeah. And I think we're right about it that they yeah. absolutely make sense. All right, on a different note. Does this make sense? Having kids. <laughs> because man, they can be a pain in the butt. Yeah. And they're expensive mm-hmm. and unruly mm-hmm. and dirty and often angry. Yeah. I mean They do talk back. Ugh. It's a it's a it's a burden to have kids. Yeah, I, I, yeah. it is. Those it little, is. Oh, and I'll I tell you, before wanna... you before you have one, you should definitely just add up all the dollars they're gonna cost oh, you. Oh my gosh. And then you know, and you go through the different phases. I know. That and then they need you all the time, and then all of a sudden they don't need you. Oh, and yeah. And you're supposed to be able to figure out exactly when they've crossed that line. And your heart's out there like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought... Uh, it? I mean, really? And you were fine before they arrived. Oh, yeah. And then you get all mangled around, and then you have to like become selfless so that you can raise them. And then they leave, and you're supposed to emotionally recover from that? That doesn't make any sense it at all, It doesn't make Kath. any sense at all. Kids. You should totally do it. Makes all the sense in the world. If you can, yeah, you definitely should. Yeah, you definitely should. It's pain in the butt. It's the hardest road you'll travel, but it's a really, really good one. Love them if you can, even though they're rough. Kids make sense. We're all used to hearing travel nightmares, especially in airplanes. I mean, doors flying out, unruly passengers, people getting in fistfights. This is very interesting, though. This one, Mexico City on Friday, 
Uh, the Mexico City International Airport acknowledged in a statement that a man opened an emergency exit while a plane was on the tarmac and walked out on the wing of a plane that was parked and waiting for takeoff. Now, when you first hear that, you think, well, that's crazy. Clearly, that's a guy who's mentally disturbed yep. and he walked out on the wing. The airport said that the man had been turned over to police, but... Now you find out the rest of the story. Dozens and dozens and dozens of fellow passengers signed a written copy of a statement saying the airline made them wait for more than four hours without ventilation or water while the flight was delayed. Four Mm -hmm. hours. They were sitting in a plane on the tarmac. Yep. At least 85 passengers aboard the Aeromexico flight to Guatemala signed the statement. The delay and lack of air created conditions that endangered the health of the passengers. He saved our lives, said the petition. So now, the air fl- airplane, uh, the, um, so the airline, Aeromexico, is issuing an apology saying, my bad. Okay. At the meantime, though, the man who opened the door and walked out on the flight is going to suffer some criminal charges. Well, listen, I'd be one of those people that would sign... Sign the petition. The petition. Because that is crazy behavior. So when you... I don't mean his crazy behavior. I mean the, the behavior of asking people to sit in an airplane for four hours with, on a tarmac is crazy. Can you imagine? I mean, this is not unusual. You hear stories about yeah, this all but the time. It, I get, I get sick thinking about that. Claustrophobic. Yeah, Seriously, yeah. like I sometimes when I get into an airplane, I'm like, you know, I've gotten my bag stowed and whatever, and I sit down and buckle in, and I <laughs> have this like moment where I think, what if I can't get out of here? Right. Yeah. And here's a weird thing: I would imagine the flight from Mexico, wherever you are in Mexico, to Guatemala, can't be that long of a no, flight. No, it can't be. Right. An hour. I mean, hour and a half. Max. Well, we flew from Miami to Guatemala. Yeah. I don't think it was more than an hour. Quick right. Flight. Yeah. So whatever's going on, and of course, you know, uh, the airline, Aeromexico, is not doing this intentionally. Many things are out of their control, right? I mean, you know, technological problems, staffing problems, you name it. But there's got to be a better way to let people get off the plane. And I understand, you know, you're in line to take off and everything kind of shuts down to go back to the terminal again and start over. Then that just stacks everything up and it delays flights way down the line. I get it. But something has to there's something between everybody shooting back to the terminal all the time and sitting on the tarmac for four hours. How about opening the door? Right. You're sitting there. Just open the door for a little bit and let some air come in. I, I don't know. Okay. We don't know the full story here, but apparently someone's going to be in trouble here facing some legal challenges. Meanwhile, he just did the right thing to kind of go, I think so too. Help us out here. Okay. I'm going to ask both of you, John and Lex, yep. the longest you have ever sat in a plane. Or- I got to be honest, I've never had this situation. Really? No, never. You've never had any situation no. where you had to sit in a plane no. on a tarmac? Never. No. Wow. I mean, you know, I've. You've flown minutes. around the world tons of times. Yeah, but maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Never like in an hour, two hours, three wow. hours. You've suffered through something like this? Lex, have you done this? I've maybe waited an hour an tops hour. Um, on the tarmac, and that's mo- mainly because there were probably issues with the plane itself. Yeah. And they needed the icing to be fixed. or whatnot, mm-hmm. that whole thing. And they weren't, you know. Cataclysmic. Yeah, it wasn't anything crazy like that. I've never waited more than maybe an hour. So to wait four hours with no ventilation, no nothing. Don't you think you'd lose your mind? I would. I'd I'd probably open that door too. Right. Me too. 
What about have you suffered on the uh, tarmac? Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. Uh, it was almost a year ago. My husband and I were flying back from Nashville. We got into our seats, and um, the couple in front of me was stowing their bags. And when the man got into his seat, he was very tall, easily six seven. Mm-hmm. He sat in the seat, and he stretched, and the seat broke. Oh, he pushed against the seat. He pushed against the seat, and the seat broke, and he landed in my lap. If oh you can my imagine. gosh! Like he fell back into my lap, and the the uh, yeah, the seat just kind of let loose, collapsed. So, I mean, he was very apologetic. It wasn't his fault. Obviously, I was fine. I wasn't hurt um, in any way. But it took two and a half hours for them to figure out what to do with it. With that, so first of all, he he stood up. And then they were like, okay, there was no fixing of the seat. Nobody could figure out how to do broken. that. The seat was broken and there was no other seat. So he was like, okay, well, then I'll just wait. And, uh, you know, he said to his wife, you know, I'll meet you back in Pittsburgh on the next flight. Right. And then she was like, no, 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 I'll stay with you. So then she got off and then they were like, okay, well, seat's broken. Th- seat's broken. And so I said, well, you know, if you just duct tape it down, I mean, you know what I mean? It'll be fine. And then fix it when we get back to Pittsburgh. They couldn't do that. Nope. No. Nope. So they had to bring somebody in. And you know what they ended up doing? Mm. Duct taping it. Really? After two and a half hours. Because they couldn't get it out. They wanted to get it out. Sure, sure. They wanted to remove it from the plane. They couldn't do it. You know, I had to, my husband and I had to move because we were too close to the area where they were working. So we had to stand in the back of the plane. And we, oh yeah, it was a, it was a long situation. So everybody just sat there. Everybody and just waited. sat there. And people were hot. Yeah. I don't mean, well, they might have been temperature-wise hot, but boy, we're tempers hot. But temp- just delayed. I mean, you, know, you miss your connecting flight and, and yada, yada, right? I mean, but here's the thing. When you, <laughs> we're all used to this, but when you consider the miracle of what it is to fly. It is. It's incredible. It's right? incredible. That we get used to this miracle. Yes. And so any delay now causes us to be angry, uncomfortable. Yeah, but a four-hour delay is way beyond the pale. I get it. Way beyond the pale. Right, I mean, that just can't be. There has to be something. I mean, you know, maybe airlines come up with some sort of relay system where they send out a transit van or something and get people off the plane. I mean, you just can't sit there all the time. I wonder. You know, I'm sure that greater minds than ours have considered all these problems that, you know, happen all the time, right? They're not trying to inconvenience you just because they can. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to work it out as best they can. Right. All right, we're going to step away. But when we come back, uh, several things we're going to talk about. It's national. We're going to talk about peanut brittle, bubble wrap, and the fact that Lexi may have come around to my way of thinking uh, when it comes to getting dressed. Yep, that's still to come. The ride home. Last week, John, uh, you know, I shared something about myself that was very personal, mm-hmm. and uh, this I was on the air. It was on the air, and I, I didn't think it was going to be uh, such a thing. But I've heard from multiple listeners about this. Imagine what said off the air. Uh, exactly, and what I said was that I uh, was getting dressed one day when my daughter was home from college over the Christmas holiday, <laughs> and she walked up the stairs and she said, "Mom." What are you doing? (laughs) And I said, I'm getting dressed. And she said, but what are you doing? And she said that what my procedure for dressing was not what she was expecting. Mm -hmm. Now, you 
you would think it can't be that difficult. You were putting on a pair of pants. Yes. Ex- one leg in, one, one leg at a time. One leg at a time. <laughs> However, that's not exactly how I do it. When I get dressed, yeah. I put one foot in one pant leg, mm-hmm. and then on that foot, I put the sock, mm-hmm. and then I put the shoe on, or the boot, or whatever I'm wearing. And while you're doing that, the other leg is bare naked the and leg- hanging outside the other pair. The leg is doing what a leg, leg does. Just okay? I mean, it's fine. It's waiting for its turn. So why don't you put the sock on first? I don't know. I do pants, then sock, then shoe, or boot. And... <laughs> It is true. This, well, boot. Yeah, and boot. Or boot. Yes. And then it's time for the other. Fo- I was do right leg first. Time for the left leg. Pant, sock, shoe. And I'm telling you, I like it because when you stand up, you are ready to go. You're done. <laughs> okay? It you, seems. No. I, it seems awkward to well, me. Well, it seems awkward to a lot of listeners who Very got strange. back to me and said, what actually are you doing? Yeah. But I got a little text message from Lexi yesterday. Mm-hmm. And Lex, could you give us a little more detail? Yeah. Uh, I was running late to physical therapy mm-hmm. uh, and I was just like grabbing stuff like out of the drawers and I'm like running late. So I'm like trying to grab like a protein shake or like something like that. And I'm just running around like a crazy woman. And I'm like, OK, I got to sit down and put like, you know, my pants, my socks, my shoes on and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I know I'm running late, but I do. I have all the tools here. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> got everything there. So let me try how Kathy puts on her pants. And I got to say, it kind of does. It kind of is good. I kind of like it, actually. <laughs> oh, so there's <laughs> a- Only because she is right that once you like, you know, you're pull your pants up the rest of the way and yep. like get it ready, you're good to go. And you're you done. can run out of the door. And that's exactly what I did. I pulled my pants up when I went out the door. It wasn't that a good feeling? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it felt great to feel like I was done with something completely. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, I don't so- think I'd do it every day. Oh, uh, there you go. So I get this text. We, you know, <laughs> Kath and I are, you know, we have this little group chat here with Lexi. And then I think, oh, heaven's sake. Now I've got to try this. Yeah, I think so. I've got to try this yep. insanity because yep. these two are going <laughs> thumbs up. Now, remember what we talked about last time that, that, uh, you were like, well, what does your husband think? And I said, I don't think he knows because we always get ready at different times because sure, yeah. he gets up super early. But when I brought it up to, he heard us talking about it in the air and he's like, well, of course I know that. And I said, oh, okay, good. I said, well, what do you think? And he's like, I'm so used to it. He said, I just don't even think anything of it. He does think it's ridiculous, though, when I am polishing my shoes. <laughs> Before you put valid, the other leg actually. in. Yeah, because I'll put, I'll put my foot in, yeah. my sock, i put my shoe in, I'll be like, oh, this needs some polish. So right. that I'm polishing my leg and I've got, you know, one <laughs> completely unclothed leg. Right. And the other one is like, the other foot is getting a shoe polish. Okay, so my problem is... That I'm not as like like Lexi just said. All the pieces are not there before me. Oh well, that's well. I don't want to. That's the prereq. You have to do. Well, that. my shoes are elsewhere. Well, they're in a different room. As well, a matter but see, of fact. if you you have to assemble ahead, you have to have everything in a line, and then you can. And then you're you're out. I don't know about this. I mean, so people have chimed in. Oh yeah. And people have to a person have said crazy town. Uh, no one else other than Lexi has said that that's a great idea and I'm going to try it. Mm-hmm. Or that I already did. Not one person. All right. Well. I feel fine about it. I guess, uh, you know, just because I have to be part of the show, yep. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. Yeah. It just it just doesn't make any sense to no, me. It's just, it's terrific. And, okay, so there are there times, now this is, you know, just being a guy, are there times where you're wearing high heels? Yeah. So... <laughs> I mean, that just adds a whole other wrinkle to things. It doesn't because you're sitting down. 
I mean, you're put it. You know, you've put you've put your one. You have to stand up to put the other leg in. Well, yeah. So you like it, like on an inclined plane. Yeah, it does. I guess I never noticed that, but it doesn't bother me. I guess I am on an inclined plane, could, but it's only for a short period of time. Could hurt yourself. You could fall over. I feel I feel solid. Hmm. I feel like I've got a firm foundation while I do it. All right. Well, maybe this is a new trend, and it started here with Kath, and then Lex picked it up, and you know, throughout. I just Western want everybody to be happy. That's what I'm saying. No, and no, they, you're just saying this is, you know, this is kind of like an efficiency expert. It is. It's an right? efficiency thing. That's how I feel. Didn't you feel efficient, Lexi? Mm-hmm. I can't say I felt efficient, oh. but <laughs> yeah. I was done with everything when I. That's what you know. It was a one and done kind of I'm deal. Pretty sure right. that's right. Right. I'm pretty sure that's what efficiency means. I don't know. So. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, people. I like to be efficient. Yeah. So there you go. This is gonna. This is perfect for you. But I think the gathering of like that's perfect the, efficiency. The shoe get, get and every, the sauce. It's like if you're making dinner, you're baking something. You get all your ingredients yes, out. Course. You get them all measured out so you can mix it all together, put it in the oven, and be done. Well, you know, I'm just to be even more efficient. I'm going to have to make like a post-it note to remind myself to do this. Good. Insanity. I think it's a fine idea. I'll just right? text you in the morning. Also, it's National Peanut Brittle Day. Okay, peanut brittle. Okay, I like it. But uh, when's the last time you had peanut brittle? Last Christmas. What? what? Lexi, peanut brittle? Haven't had that in years. In no. years. Oh yeah. Really? I have it every Christmas. It's like a Christmas treat. Oh yeah. In the Emmons house. Oh yeah. Really? Oh, it's so good. Huh. You don't really care. I'm surprised. You love a nut. I love peanut brittle. I mean. It's not something like, you know, oh, here, here's a box of peanut brittle. Do you go out and buy a box of peanut brittle? I usually make it. What? You're way ahead of the The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.